Hey guys, welcome to the Flux podcast. This is episode two of the Democracy Squared series. Today we're interviewing Adam Jacobi from My Vote. I was lucky enough to speak to Adam um, a month or so ago and interview him about MyVote, which is a, a sort of tech democracy platform that he's founded in Australia and that's award-winning and incredibly innovative. I went through John's interview with Adam to kind of edit it down, but, but actually he's an incredibly articulate guy, as John said, so I've left it largely untouched. Um, so what you'll hear is, is, is quite an extensive podcast, actually, so kind of strap in and be ready for a, for a good hour of, of really, really fascinating content. That's right. And um, before, we're going to share a few of our insights from that talk, but before we just want to say that in the, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be um, launching the, the book properly online um, with early bird discounts to that. That'll include um, sort of our, our context and how we see the, the world of tech democracy evolving, as well as some, some really great interviews with some incredibly innovative and smart projects around the world that are really putting this into practice. So if you go to democracysquared.io for more information, sign up there and we'll, we'll let you know when, um, when those first, first releases are out, really. Yeah, so what some thoughts on um, Adam and my vote, just to kind of set the context for, for the interview. What are, your, what are your kind of big takeaways from it? So the, the first one is just that he seems to have thought of everything. Like I was incredibly, I felt like I was quite rigorous in, in asking him sort of various questions about various parts. It's such a, a complex territory to be talking about. But whatever we spoke about, he seemed to have a, a real thing in place uh, for my vote to do that. So that, that was just like my main takeaway from the, I guess, how thorough he's been with the process of creating my votes, kind of astonishing. And also from a conceptual level, he's really kind of interrogated what democracy is and what it should be and created a solution for that. So he's he talks a lot about how the, the platform should be agnostic it should not have an opinion and it's there to serve the will of the people so he actually at one point says you know if 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 my vote spits out uh, a policy that that he doesn't necessarily agree with morally himself then he's actually okay with that because he believes so much in the process and the kind of the kind of democracy that they've created um that that he's he's fine to go along with it which is pretty it's pretty amazing thing to be able to do that it's like the only ideology he has is that my vote should be a platform which doesn't have an ideology. Yeah. Um, and he, he seems really, uh, really rigorous and committed to, to sticking to that. Yeah. Another thought that I had um, from, from his interview, which I thought was really interesting, is this idea of destinational democracy. Mm. So I think uh, what it points out to me is that it's quite easy to, for people, if we were voting in a more direct democracy, we'd be voting on policies probably, um, which can be quite short-termist, but what Adam's proposing is a system whereby we vote for, for the direction we want our nation or culture to go in. Um, and then after, after citizens have sort of aligned around the kind of country they want to create, um, then we start voting on or, or making decisions about policy itself. And I think that's a really interesting thing that I'd not really seen before. Mm. Cool. So I'll let, we'll kind of jump, jump right into it then. Uh, Here's Adam talking about kind of who he is and how he started MyVo and, and what its kind of overall um, kind of ethos is.
headline act, I suppose, is that I'm a serial entrepreneur for about 25 years, slightly less than 25 years. Um, and in fact, um, you know, throughout my entire adult life have very rarely worked for anyone else. Um, it's really just been a series of businesses that have grown and been sold off. Um, and I've been really fortunate in a number of those businesses um, to be able to live in different parts of the world and experience different cultures and um, get a sense of what different types of people in the world go through um, in their struggle to sort of find relevance and find themselves and have a place and have a voice. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a revolutionary. Most of the businesses that I've started um, tend to disrupt and annoy incumbent large organisations. Um, and I get a bit of a kick out of that, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I'm not usually one to stray away from a, a bit of an intellectual strategic street fight. So um, I'm always happy to do that too. But I guess all of this, I mean, my vote really came about, it was percolating away in the back of the brain from about five years ago, I suppose. Um, and that was a time when I had... Um, I decided to take a very short break from running businesses and um, my father, who's a professor, I'm the, like, the only person in my family who doesn't have a PhD. Um, and, you know, I didn't start university. I didn't go to university. when I, so I started my first business as soon as I got out of school, high school. Um, and my father was begging me for years and years and years to just get a degree because, you know, this crazy entrepreneurship stuff won't work one day and, and I need to have something to fall back on. So um, after a few businesses, I decided I'd take a year off and I'd actually I'd go to university and I started with a Master's of Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Um, and that's what really had me starting to think about um, how to reach a number of people in a significant way. And, I'd, I, you know, I was learning about all the things that they teach you in business school and entrepreneur school around, you know, business casing and cut through and mitigating risk and understanding risk and, and, and all this, the boring stuff that, that they teach but actually is reasonably useless. Um, but I actually started thinking about doing things above and beyond money. And then um, shortly thereafter, my first child was born. I have four kids. Um, and I was becoming sort of increasingly despondent about the fact that my children's voices were becoming less and less relevant as every day went by. And, you know, all I was seeing in Australia at least, um, and I have a fairly significant interest in US politics because I lived in the US for a long time, um, and everything I was seeing was about a system that was fundamentally broken. And, you know, that were, it was becoming less accessible for the average person to have a voice that meant anything. Um, there was more and more validation about this idea that, in fact, the correlation between the will of the people and, and, and legislation um, was going further and further apart. And, you know, the average person just didn't really have any relevance to what was going on in the world. Um, and I didn't really want my children to grow up in a world where that was the case. And and they were just sort of bystanders to this, the decisions that would affect their lives. Um, and I sat down with my father and a couple of other people that I'm close to, some mentors, um, and just said, you know, I, I can either, like you, you know, you, you talk, John, about being addicted to Twitter. I'm equally addicted to Twitter and have been for a long time. And I thought, you know, I can sit sit here and, and, um, and snipe on Twitter from the background and bitch and moan about how terrible the world is and how terrible politics um, is for the average person and, and, and the majority of people. Or I can actually try and do something about it. So I spent some time thinking about democracy as though it were a business, as though it were a startup. And I thought, you know, if democracy is the product, 
what does the market want and what does the market need? Because we've reached this point in time where it, it doesn't serve its customers anymore. Um, and for it to do the job that it was originally intended to do, it really needs to be redesigned. Um, and so that's kind of how the whole thing started. So I started building it as though it were a startup. And then I started pitching it to people to sort of sense check if, if, it, if it resonated and made sense and um, didn't offend too much. And I, and I don't mean offend ideologically, I mean offend logically. Um, and I'm fortunate to have a lot of friends who are judges and former judges and politicians and former politicians and community leaders and business leaders. And, and you know, the more I went out to talk to people, I think in that first year after I had started framing it, um, I must have spoken to 100 people about it. Um, and the sense was, you know, it's not perfect yet, but you're onto something. Um, and so I kept building and building and shaping and then introduced it to a group of people who I invited into the project. Um, and, you know, it's just gone crazy from there. So that, that was sort of the, um, the process that led you to my vote. So maybe tell me, tell me a little bit more about my vote and what it is, what it became. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so my vote is a, a blockchain enabled um, digital platform um, that is intending to and is building um, what we believe is the most genuinely democratic political model that exists in the world today. Um, and I say that without in any way wanting to disrespect um, my fellow democratic innovators around the world, some of whom you've already spoken to and, and, and some of the people you've spoken to I have an existing relationship with. Um, you know, Pia Mancini is the rock star of our movement now, um, our ecosystem, um, and we're all approaching these challenges in different ways. And I, I think it would be fair to say that we all have enormous mutual respect for one another um, because there is a genuine intent to make the world that we live in a better place for more people. Um, we just view it in a slightly different way. So, so my vote is about um, creating a representative movement. So, so like Democracy Earth, um, we will run candidates and we, we will, in fact, run candidates in the Australian Senate at the next federal election and most likely in a couple of state elections before we reach the federal election. Um, but we start from a very different place that everybody else does. So we start from a, you know, a thought that says, well, we don't actually, genuine democracy doesn't exist anywhere in the world um, at the moment. Um, and there are people who are trying to create it, but, but at the moment it doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because fundamentally democracy is about the enactment of the will of the people. Um, and when I put the Australia lens over this, um, we can't have democracy because there's no way the government or the opposition could claim to be enacting the will of the people because they never ask the people what they actually want. And so if you're not engaged in a dialogue with your constituency, it's impossible to, to deliver the outcome that the majority of people want. And in fact, if we were going to drill down into the reality of it, um, it would be near impossible for either our prime minister or the leader of the opposition to in any way confidently validate that they even understand what the electorate wants. Um, so we start from a place that says that there is a dialogue, which is obvious, and there are a lot of other groups like Democracy Earth and others around the world who are doing that. Um, and we start from a place that says we don't have policy until uh, we don't have a policy position until our constituency has spoken and we have a majority position. But that's where we start to sort of divert from the others. Um, so first and foremost, our first starting place is that ideology is, in fact, the single largest threat to genuine democracy on the planet. Um, and it's a threat for a couple of reasons. Ideology, having a political ideology fundamentally says that 
I have an answer to the question before you've even asked the question because my worldview shapes my thinking about every issue. Um, and I give speeches about democracy um, quite a bit around the world, um, a lot in Australia, and I start every conversation with the same question to the audience. You know, do you believe that there's any worldview or ideology that genuinely has the solution for every problem that faces us as a, as a people, as a nation? And invariably, everybody in the audience says no. And yet what our adversarial binary political system requires is for us to vote for a party on the basis that it will make all the right decisions on our behalf with a thought or an idea that, in fact, we vote for them um, because we know what they're going to do or, alternatively, they know what we want. And that's just simply not the case. You know, a an election does not a democracy make. So we start from a place that says we don't have any ideological position and we're not wedded to any solution that might exist for any issue. What, we, what we've done is sort of decoupled the legislative, binary legislative conversation from democracy and replaced it with a conversation about destination. So rather than saying, do you support the bill, yes or no, right, we've got enough yeses, therefore that's where the party's going or the movement's going, because the other thing is we don't call ourselves a party. Um, we actually say, no, we want to talk about the destination. Where do you as an individual and then where do we collectively as a country, as a, as a citizenry, where do we want our government, where do we want our country to go on this issue. And we present um, four different destinational frames that our constituency um, can vote for. So, for example, if we look at the immigration issue, which is obviously a fairly significant issue everywhere in the world at the moment, um, because it tends to couple itself with, with asylum seekers as an issue. Um, you know, what we have now in Australia, for example, and what, you know, in the UK, Brexit is a good example, but in Australia, we have this situation where um, we talk about Manus and Nauru and we talk about um, the care that is required of asylum seekers and how many people should we should we bring in and so forth. But the problem is that that, that conversation is already tied to the particular worldviews of the two major political parties who, for the most part, are actually identical in their thinking. Um, and so there is no real choice for the electorate to think about, well, what's an alternative worldview? So in the immigration issue, as an example, the kind of things that we would do with our constituency is say, you know, the vote would be, would you like to tell, would you like the government, would you like the country to take a, human, a primarily humanitarian approach to asylum seekers or immigration? Would you like it to take a national security, border security approach? Would you like it to take a financially pragmatic approach? And then, or would you like it to take an international diplomacy approach? And so the question is a different question because you're actually talking about where you want us to go. It's a long, it's a sort of a, a long-term question as opposed to do you support this particular bill or not? Because one of the challenges that we have with the ideological adversarial system that exists today <clears throat> is the conversations are always pitches. We're being pitched to all the time without any conversation about what that particular pitch does and where it takes us in the long term. Um, and I think Brexit's a good example of a whole lot of people who made a vote on the basis of a short-term conversation but then get to the end of that conversation and go, uh, you know what, I really didn't understand what it meant or I, I, I wasn't aware that these were the exact outcomes that would happen. Um, and that's not for everybody because some people were very aware and very informed, but certainly what I'm reading is that there are a lot of people who only understood part of the issue. So we start from the first, so the first peg in the ground for us is 
you know, the majority position always rules the policy, creates the policy. The second peg in the ground is we are non-ideological. So we're going to provide you with a, a suite of destinational options so that you can understand the issue and, and you understand that you have choice. Um, and then the third peg in the ground is that you can't have genuine democracy without an informed constituency. So if, if what we have, and, and I think this is the case, certainly it was the case when I was in the US and living there, and um, and it's the case absolutely in Australia, where we have these, propaganda, these media propaganda machines that provide you the information and the data that supports their worldview, completely ignoring the data that might not, in fact, um, support their view. What you have is a, is a constituency who is unable to make an informed decision. So they're voting for things that they don't understand um, or that they're misinformed about because they've deliberately been provided misinformation. So so what we sort of say is, um, and a big part about the investment in our movement is in researchers, subjective researchers. Um, and what we do is provide um, a quite a detailed frame of reference for what each of those destinations might look like. So if we take the immigration example that I provided you, what we would do is if you, you know, you could unpack it, open your library. So the user experience would be this. You download the app for nothing. It would push notify you. So you're now a member, costs you nothing. We push notify you and say, you know, we're having the immigration policy um, vote on Friday, do you want to opt into that vote? Yes, I do. Click the button. At that point, your personal library in your app will fill with the information related to that issue. When you go into that library, you'll then be able to look at each of the frames and it will say, right, if you believed in a humanitarian approach, these are the things you would believe in. These are the, the positions you couldn't support. These are the kind of parties that that position aligns to current parties at the moment. Um, and it can be, uh, you can sort of delve as deeply as you want into it. So there's the short term sort of um, dot point pricey version of understanding the issue. If you go, that's interesting, but I don't, I don't have enough information to know if that's really what I believe and that's the destination I want the country to take. And then you can press cascade down and you'll go into sort of a four or five page overview, which been, has been written by the researchers, uh, by our researchers. And if that's not enough, you can cascade further and actually then have access to all the links to all of the source documentation and reports um, that helped formulate the frames. So you can go as deeply as you'd like into the information and the issues. Um, and then we ask you to vote. And so the vote will come up. Um, the results of the vote um, are available 48 hours after the vote takes place to all of our members um, and then shortly thereafter to the media because that's what forms policy position. Um, but the, the, the next peg for us is that we don't have a 51-49% majority as most binary legislative e-voting platforms do. Um, the nature of our proprietary voting system is that we get to 60%. So when we say that our constituent, the majority of our constituents want something, we genuinely mean the majority. We're not talking about 49-51 and so the, the, the party, the movement is divided. Um, we actually say that really genuinely most of the people want this as a direction. And once that direction has been set, unlike the binary yes and no of a legislation conversation, once a destination is there, then our representatives in the Senate have a constitutional requirement under our constitution to represent that position of our constituency so that whoever's writing the bill, whether it's the government, um, this current government, or, you know, if the government were to change hands at the next election, whoever writes the bill, our representative's responsibility is only to make a determination um, 
if it delivers to the destination that the majority of our people want. And so there's a negotiating nuance in there that allows us to try and make it more closely aligned, but still be pragmatic and understand that, in fact, no issue is just black and white. And, you know, most people don't just want humanitarian or just don't want border security. They want a little bit of everything. Um, And the way that our system works is we understand... Um, we're able to analyse through the voting mechanism, not just what the most successful frame of reference is, but then in order what the next three look like as well. So we have a sense of what's most and least important to our constituency, and that then becomes part of the negotiation. The last part of that conversation is that all of the positions, so once the majority speaks and we have a destinational frame of reference and a majority for that position, um, the next thing that we do is everything is underpinned by our value set. And the value set of my vote um, is not negotiable. So even though, if I continue on the immigration example, so if the majority of constituents, of my vote constituents said, we want a border security approach, so that's, you know, a a more right-leaning approach to the immigration issue, um, even that would still have to be vetted to some degree by the value set. And the value set is meritocracy and equality of opportunity um, and transparency and accountability and, and, and ideas like that. So that we, we won't create or endorse or support policy that will harm people or, disadvan- or um, disadvantage people on the basis of, you know, their race or their religion. Um, but if the majority says that they want to protect the borders, then that is the position that the movement will take. Um, so it's, it, it's, you know, populist to some degree, but, you know, my discomfort is that the word populist has been hijacked in the political discourse anyway as being a negative. But in fact, that's what democracy is about. What it what it misses in the current frame and what we're trying to fix is that the populist view is also the informed view. So when I said that you have your own library, the way that our digital mechanism works is if you opt into the immigration conversation vote and you never open your library, your voting light will never go on. If you don't choose to be informed we choose not to listen to you. So that's a pretty fundamental difference to what everybody else is doing. Yeah, and that's that's come up in so many conversations I've had, that idea that, you know, if people aren't informed, should they vote? But then equally, the question that comes up is, uh, what is it to be informed? Like, who decides what is, what is fact and what is... Uh, selected fact so i'm interested yeah, so you we, mentioned having we, we have a warts and all approach to that yeah go for it yeah we have a warts and all approach to that because we're non-ideological and we don't really care what the answer is what we care is that the people understand their options and understand the facts that underpin the issues so i had my one of my very first conversations when i started this movement um, was with a friend an old friend who was a former judge very senior former judge and we had this argument about um is there such thing as truth and what's truth? And he was arguing that there's no such thing as truth. And if you, again, if you use the immigration argument, you know, there are no facts. There's no such thing as facts. And that's absolute bullshit because there absolutely are facts. The issue is that the public doesn't have access to most of them. So we would say there are facts that support all sides and all destinations. But what you get is um, a collection of facts pitched to you for a particular purpose, for a particular worldview, without acknowledging that there are also facts that are inconvenient that might lean themselves to a different worldview. And because we're not advocating for any one position, all we want is for all of that to see the light of day. We want to inundate you with information, and I don't mean that in an oppressive way that nobody's actually going to go and do it, but we want to provide you with enough information 
that you need to be able to make a decision that's informed without in any way suggesting to you that you should feel a particular way about the facts that are provided. So for good or for bad or and everything in between, these are the reality. This is how many people came in by boat. This is how many people died at sea. This is how much it costs to process somebody offshore. This is what it costs to process somebody onshore. This is whether or not the law contravenes um, the legal definitions required by international treaties. These they, these are black and white things. So um, it's not it's not interpretation. Um, and we have four governance protocols within our process that work towards objectivity. So it's not like somebody can sit in a room and put a frame together, a destination, and then just whack it up on the website. It has to go through the policy committee, then the ethics committee, then the governance committee, and then it has to be signed off by the council, which is our board. So there are four checks and balances to make sure that we are not advocating for anything and that the positions that are put forward um, provide as much information as is readily available that we can get our hands on, point A. And point B, um, then for each of the, the potential destinations, actually provides some information that contextualises it, that's real, that's factual, it's not speculation, it's not hearsay, it, it's, it is what it is. Now, if you look at things like climate change and you have scientists who believe one thing and scientists who believe another, we would highlight the fact that there are, there are a, a, a group of scientists who believe this, but that group is the minority, you know, and, and here are the groups and the scientific groups and um, associations and members and universities who have a particular view. And so we're not saying you shouldn't listen to all views. We're actually encouraging you to understand what everybody is saying and make a determination for yourself on the weight of evidence what you think makes the most sense. So I'll, I'll get to that point on a majority minority in a minute. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you mentioned having governance protocols which work towards objectivity. <laughs> so can you just tell me yep. um, what, what a couple of those sort of measures are? Well, it's, it's really about, the, first of all, the language, that, the, the way things get written. Um, it, it, it sits towards um, ensuring that frames aren't present. So we don't, because we're not advocating and because our position is we don't, we don't care whether um, a position that is adopted as policy comes from the left or comes from the right or comes from somewhere in the middle. What we care is that it's the best solution as determined by the people and an informed people. And so the first question is, can we collect enough data um, that provides enough information about this issue to be meaningful? Because if, you, if you're trying to unpack a destination and an issue and you actually have nothing substantive to support that destination, that's a bit of a problem. Um, the second question is, where does the data come from? How valid is it? Um, and it's also worth saying that I am not a data analyst and nor am I a professional researcher, but we have people in the organisation um, who do that. That's their job every day. And the person who heads up um, our governance and policy area is also one of the most senior executives of the Ethics Council of New South Wales. So his job every day is to make sure there is objectivity in all sorts of parts of our society. Um, and so we've really tried to go out to make sure that the deepest level governance um, checklists, guidelines, regulations um, can be put into place here. Um, and whilst we're not revealing exactly how we do all of that, um, and some of it, to be honest, remember, you know, we started this three, three years ago as a building process. We've only officially been up as a brand for six months. Um, and so some of it is still getting built. And, and to give you an idea, when the policy group 
put the voting mechanism together, and our voting mechanism comes off the back of a 1979 mathematical PhD paper from New York University. Um, that was sort of the, the, the catalyst behind the thinking about how to do it. Um, you know, when we started looking at these things, the first, you know, there are a series of questions that we have to ask in terms of what we're trying to deliver. So the first question is, is it genuinely democratic to do it that way? The second question is, can we technologically deliver it? So does the, can the platform deliver it? What does it take? And then the third one is from a governance perspective, um, can we protect it and ensure that it has integrity? And so every decision we make sort of gets looked at from those three lenses. Um, and, you know, I'm thankful that there are people that are a hell of a lot smarter than me who are sitting around the table um, to assist in making those determinations. And when they're a little bit... Um, grey, when the area is grey, can help us walk through and, and build a solution that satisfies those three frames of reference. And so you said that it's been, you've been building this for three years, it's been a, a public facing brand for six months. Um, yeah. what, what's the, do you have any sort of case studies or stories of this, um, of this, this running in the real world, I guess, or any anecdotes to share? <laughs> Look, we don't we don't have any stories of it running in the real world, um, in as much as the platform hasn't hasn't been finished yet. So, um, we will have a working prototype beta tested by the end of this year. We're very very close to finishing it. Actually, um, the last piece now is to do the beta testing on the black blockchain element um, to make sure that it is um, it protects both the votes and the identity um, of the voters. Um, so that's what we're working on at the moment. Um, in terms of the movement itself, um, what's been really fascinating for us is that we're kind of a, we're a different voice in the Australian space because we're the only ones who aren't pitching anything. So we're, we're not trying to convince you to do anything other than to just ask a different set of questions about your democracy. Uh, and what's been interesting for me since we've started it um, is the level of support we've had from places that we didn't think we'd have it. Um, so we, we, we're already several thousand members um, in the first six months, and um, we also have a number of additional democratic um, processes in the movement. So, for example, we don't accept any corporate or interest group funding at all. So this is entirely individually funded, donor-funded. Um, so if, if you want to give us money as a company, we won't accept it. But if the CEO of the company wants to write the cheque in their own name, we will accept that on the proviso that they understand that, A, that donation will be made public on the website with both their name and the amount, um, and that's not negotiable, and, B, that they're getting no access whatsoever to the policy um, and research teams. So, uh, you know, there's a complete disconnect between the people who are putting the frames together and any access to the donating group, um, which is really important. The other thing which we've also sort of stripped back some of that empire-building political um, ambition is you can't, under our constitution, you can't serve more than two terms as a representative if you were to be elected. Because this isn't about you becoming prime minister. This isn't about you trying to build a name for yourself. Part of the condition is that you, you come in understanding that you will at times have to advocate for majority positions that you personally may not believe in at all. Um, and so you have two terms to, as a civic duty rather than as an ability for you to build your own profile. 
And then you have a requirement under our constitution to mentor the next generation of representatives as they come through. So we've 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 kind of tried to look at it from a three to sixty perspective, and a lot of these things are genuinely resonating with the community. So as I said, we've got several thousand members, we've got um, a few thousand social media followers, um, and now all of a sudden, I think, firstly part partly because I guess of the international acknowledgement of the model through the singularity global challenge awards and our invitation finalist position in that i think people sort started to sit up and go maybe this does actually have something um and maybe you know if it's being acknowledged on a world stage as being something worth looking at it's worth having a look at it and then you know for us it was i have to say you know after 20 odd years of being an entrepreneur um, and starting businesses and, and having good receptions with a couple of those businesses and a few, couple of them being very successful. Um, the response that we got in San Francisco a few weeks ago at, at the, the Global Challenge Awards was just overwhelming, you know. Um, you know, we architected this and the intent of this program was for Australia. It's been built for the Australian political system, but um, it seems to have resonated to the point that we now have 22 countries who are asking if they can start my vote chapters. We've got international VCs who want to help fund the technology, which we won't accept because we won't take corporate money. Um, but it's a nice thing. It's a nice validation point anyway. Um, we've got, um, you know, internationally recognised iconic NGOs um, suggesting that they'd like to endorse us as a model because they see it as genuinely democratic um and you know that that's a really strong position for us to be in and all of that then resulted in the fast company piece which has then resulted you know i've had half a dozen interview requests in the last 48 hours um and, and so thanks all of a sudden to, thanks for taking ahead. this one <laughs> <laughs> no although you know a book's a book it's a whole different thing and 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 again it's it's i like the fact that you're not look you're not looking for a story for a paper for today you're obviously very genuinely and deeply interested in the topic, um, as am I. So, you know, I, I would happily walk away from my vote tomorrow and never be attached to it again if it, you know, and, and it be extremely successful um, because my interest is in the success of the change that it can bring, whether or not I'm attached to it. You know, this isn't a personal thing. And to that end, what I say to a lot of people, because there is always scepticism in politics and people say, oh, well, you know, this is just a platform for you to go and run. Um, and the, the promise that I've made to all of our members and all of our volunteers and all of our constituents and, and our board is I'm never running for office. This is not about me. Um, there are, I can think of 100 people that could do a much better job of representing the citizenry than I could. Um, all I care about is that the system changes so that my children live in a better world. Um, but, fuck, there are a lot of people that should be doing this before I should be doing it. Yeah, and I think what's really striking me as I listen to this is the number of, uh, you said a 360-degree view, but I think you've really, um, you've really like ticked off a load of due diligence things that, that I guess are important to the foundations for it to have respect. The idea that you won't run, the idea that uh, any funder has to put their name and the amount on the website, like all of those kind of things are, they sound like hygiene points, but they're they're what make it a democracy or not a democracy, essentially. Well, that that's exactly right, and that's our position. And that and you know, we, there are other movements in Australia that have been around for a lot longer than us, um, who have been advocating that they're pro-democratic, and, and they're a lot better than the current system. Um, but one of them, in particular, you know, who, one in particular who I speak to their founder quite often, um, and we we share 
uh, a lot of worldview about what democracy should look like. But even within their own group, you know, we say things like we're the most democratic movement in the country and they get deeply offended by that because they say, well, we're really democratic. But, yeah, <laughs> you're still talking about it. You know, and you are, but you still allow corporate donations and you still allow your members to, to run for as long as they can and you still talk about um, voting on legislative um, policy rather than destinational policy. So you're not, and you don't inform your citizenry by providing an information pack. So it's not that you're not democratic, it's just that you haven't quite taken it as far as you could if your intent is genuine democracy. Um, and so, you know, from our point of view, though, the idea of, uh, you know, as much as you can create genuine democracy, that that's sacrosanct to us. So that that's the not negotiable element here. It, you know, I, Nothing else matters, and every frame of reference that we have, and, you know, when I get on social media and I look at Twitter, I have personal worldviews, of course. We're all individuals. And, and as I keep saying to people, as I said to somebody in a meeting today who's a very well-known Australian who runs a huge NGO um, for the youth sector, you know, really controls the voice of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of youth um, and represents them and advocates on their behalf in the community um, who want to partner with us, which, you know, we've had an amazing day as a result of that. But, um, you know, as I said to her, what, what's critically important is when, when I have these media conversations and invariably, you know, the media tries to catch you out and they'll say, but what's your position on immigration? Or what do you think about what this senator said? What I think doesn't matter. You know, I'm one voice. Now, my voice matters like everybody else's voice matters, but what I think about immigration and that particular position is not relevant to the debate because what's relevant your, your world is that... Your worldview is the system, your world, or the worldview that you're choosing to express, at least, is, the, um, is a truly democratic system. Good, tr truly. And so the first... And, and this was really crystallised for me and then started to sort of become like um, scar tissue for me. Um, it, it'll never get removed. From the, one of the first conversations I had, ever had with my father about this. So as I started to sort of unpack it for him um, and say, look, this is where I think it could go and if you were going to construct it, this is how you might go about constructing it. Um, he, he asked me a question that I couldn't answer at the time. This was got to be two and a half years ago or maybe longer. Um, and he said to me, but, but Ad, and, and so the context of this is um, I have a number of friends who are gay you know, I'm very close with them and I'm invested in their lives and, you know, they're very close with my children and my wife. And um, and, and he said, you know, so so let's say, for example, that this is really successful and you get a million members to the movement and you, you get representatives in parliament um, and you ask the people about marriage equality, which for the rest of the world, you know, most people can't believe we're even still having this bloody debate. But anyway, um, you ask people about marriage equality and let's say the movement you know, doesn't support marriage equality, but you personally really believe in it. Um, obviously, because you have a context and you have relationships with people and friends for whom this is a really important issue. Um, and I, I couldn't answer the question at the beginning. And I had to go away for a few days and really sort of meditate on that question. And, ha and how would I feel about being involved with a movement that fundamentally advocated and fought for a position that I didn't believe in? And where I got to on the meditation was that, in fact, if that's what happens when a group of citizens have an opportunity to see a variety of different options and are informed about what each of those options are, well, that's democracy. And you win some and you lose some. And because I want it doesn't mean that it should happen. 
What's the role for representatives, do you think, then? If that's currently the case, you, you have a slightly different approach, but you still have representatives. Do you think if we, like, push ourselves into the future a bit more, so let's say, like, let's say the current um, version of my vote has become the norm... And yeah, if you we... if you extrapolate it out as far as you want to go, the yeah. reality is that you don't need parties at all. Parties don't need to exist. Because if you're presenting people with a variety of options and you're not advocating for a particular view, you're saying, here are the different paths that we can take, and this is what it means to take those paths. Here's the information you need to make a decision, and we promise that we'll... Um, our policy or our decisions, our legislation, will support the 60% majority position. What do you need to be pitched to by parties anymore? Well, that, that's now an obsolete notion. Yeah, I mean, the, the analogy I've been using is in, uh, in the business world, a, a great case, case study is Napster. So you have an industry where you have a huge supply chain to get a piece of music to a fan. Um, and mm -hmm. the internet bypasses that basically using peer-to-peer -peer technology. Um, so if blockchain yeah. is that equivalent for voting, you get the decision straight to the citizen rather than having to go through like a, a linear supply chain almost. That's exactly right. And, you know, and, and everybody who, who pushes to keep the status quo, you know, we say the same thing to them. When I, so when I talk to my grandmother, my grandmother's 99 years old. And when I talk to my grandmother, she... Um, about how, what it was, what life was like growing up. She was born in Europe. Um, and, you know, everything about the world has changed from when she was a kid. You know, how she got around. So transport and communication and uh, entertainment and, you know, literally everything, how she shopped, how she, um, you know, lights, television, radio, trains, everything is different. Yet we still govern ourselves in exactly the same way. It's complete insanity. So we live in an entirely different world, yet think that the way that we govern ourselves from that previous world is still relevant for this one. There's no excuse in 2016 when you can have a many-to-many, many-to-one and one-to-many conversation that um, we do not have a conversation with our electorate on every issue. There is just simply no excuse for it. I mean, do you think there will be politicians in the future or representatives? And if so, what do you think their roles will be? Well, I, I think what we need to do is go back to this idea that politics isn't a profession. It's a civic responsibility. And that's what my vote's trying to do. We're trying to say this isn't about you being here forever and collecting a pension forever and, you know, being able to fly around on helicopters at our expense. This is about you taking a set period of time to perform a civic responsibility, which is about delivering the will of the people for the good of all. Um, and, and, that's, and, and so we look at it differently. And the reality is that when you position it and frame it, that that's what the role is. And, you know, so, for example, another role that we have, we're not sure we're getting legal advice as to whether or not we're able to do this constitutionally in terms of the way the system's set up. But one of the things we'd like to do is that because you can serve into your second term and then um, part of your pension get, can get turned on in Australia, um, and so you then get a pension forever for a period of time, we're trying to do it so that no individual can keep that pension and that the pension comes back to the movement. So that it's not about enriching you as an individual. And when you remove all of those little luxuries from the experience, the kind of person that wants to stand up and take the role is a fundamentally different person. Because if you can't be there to advocate a worldview, and it's not about enriching yourself, it's about working for the people to, do, to deliver a better outcome for everybody, 
understanding that not everybody will agree with every decision, but the outcome is always about for everybody. Um, you know, that's somebody who wants to give back rather than somebody who wants to take. When I think of the existing pol uh, political class in, in pretty much everywhere, they're nothing but takers. You know, it, it's just rort after rort after rort. It's about people who want to protect their power, their positional authority, um, rather than actually have some practical authority which is based upon doing good and having trust, the electorate trusting you. You know, we had, we had another occasion today. It's just been this litany of um, insane stuff coming out of the Australian <laughs> political system in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, we, we had another one today where our immigration minister, which is a term I have to use with great despair, um, our immigration minister, she, so she gave her maiden speech in parliament yesterday after just being elected. And obviously her views are abhorrent to the vast, vast majority of Australians. But um, our immigration minister, who comes from the right of politics, um, and exactly how far right he is remains in question, um, came out publicly this morning, which I found fascinating to say, um, you know, we might not agree with what she says, but we have to respect her as a parliamentarian, which I find a staggering thing to say to the public because respect is earned. It's certainly not given by virtue of political authority. So you have a positional authority that allows you, you know, you're a minister, so you sit in a seat that gives you some power. But that doesn't mean you deserve respect because it's what you do with that power that will determine whether or not the constituency should respect you. But this is, you know, it, it's... it's it's symbolic of the way that the political class think that because they've won an election and sit in a seat, we should just respect them. They just, that's it. They should get respect. You know, there, there's not a sense of, well, actually, what am I doing with it? Am I enacting this authority that you've given to me in a way that is worthy of your respect? Um, and and this, is, this is the part that seems to be missing from our system, the understanding of what it means to be a politician and the understanding of what it means to be a democracy. The future of democracy or whatever it'll be called will have different systems to uh, to to allow for whether we're voting on the what the how the why the where to well well i think i think in in reality you know again if i to answer the question i i will put my entrepreneurship hat back on and so if you're running it like an entrepreneurial business it, it's not a matter of is it a what or is it a why or is it a how it has to be all of those things because you know, a business that does that can't answer those fundamental questions will never be successful. And so, and the same goes for a political system, a political movement or an ecosystem or a democracy or whatever you want to call it. The reality is that unless you know why you're doing it as the first starting point, and this is the part of the, the dialogue at the moment, this is why we've moved from a legislative to a destinational conversation in my vote. Because what's, what's fraught in having people get an app, download an app that all they're asking for is yes or no. Do you support the bill, yes or no? The reality is that most politicians aren't even reading the bills. They vote the way that their party tells them to vote. So what to hope in real terms is the average person um, who has a busy life, is just trying to put food on the table and get their kids to school and, you know, is busy with life, who has the time to read a 600-page piece of legislation and go, yes, I support it or no, I don't? And, and because nobody has the time what you invariably do is end up in this superficial propaganda space where you have to hear a couple of sound bites from somebody to decide where you want to go. 
And there's a problem because in that, because the media cycle is so short and nobody wants to explain anything in any significant detail, what you miss is if I agree with this, if I support this piece of legislation, where does it eventually take us? So I know what you're saying it does now, but what's it doing to whatever position or whatever issue we're talking about, which is why we talk about destination. And, and I mean, you used a, a, you've used a couple of analogies. I'll use, I'll use another one. The way that we describe it is that legislation, um, if you take it from a business context, right, legislation is the contract. That, that, that's really the nuts and bolts. This is the law now. This is the contract that we're going we're gonna to be guided by. But in what business in the world would you write a contract before you understand what the deal is? You start with understanding what are we, what is this relationship meant to do? What is this deal meant to look like? What do you agree? What are your roles and responsibilities? What's the outcome? What's the intention of this union? And then once you understand that, you go and you write the contract. So what my vote says is we want to understand what the deal looks like. What's the deal that the Australian public wants? Then we'll worry about whether or not the legislation gets us to that position. So what's, uh, can you give an example of how the process works for the crowd to decide that destination? Yeah, so what would happen is you would download the app, you'd, you'd be asked, do you want to participate in, in this issue? You'd say yes. Once you've clicked yes, uh, your information packs will go into your app. You then have a fixed amount of time to wade through that information. As I said before, if you don't open the information and read far enough into it, your voting light will never turn on. Um, assuming you have read enough and you've informed yourself, you will have a vote. When the people have voted on the destination that they want under our system and we have a majority position and there are sort of, there's a three-tiered system to make sure that we get there and there are safeguards. So, for example, if we run an issue but less than 25% of our constituency vote on the issue, we don't have a position. We, have a, we sort of have a runoff way of getting it back to a place where we have enough people voting on it because we can't have a, have a system where we're advocating that we have a policy that only 24% so of our it, members actually vote on. So is the way in which on. they vote, is it quantitative? So they're given, they're so, given choices and they, they tick the box. I think earlier your example was humanitarian, yes. economical security. So, so they are given the choices. They're always given four frames. And those frames will tend to align again, not legislatively, but destinationally, with the major, the three major parties. Now, they won't be like for like, but they will be sort of the essence, the destinational essence of what those parties believe. And then there's always a fourth position, which will be a completely unique proposition that our researchers will put in as another consideration set. So things that aren't being talked about by the other parties. So you're not even hearing these as an option, but let's put forward another option to consider. We put all of those things in, um, people will vote, but they're not voting for, you know, I've got four frames, humanitarian, border security, et cetera, et cetera. I want border security. What we're actually asking people to do, it's, is, it's an extraction. So we're saying, here are your four frames. Which are the frames that you can live with? And it can be more than one. So you can go, look, I can live with humanitarian and I can live with international diplomacy, but I can't live with border security and, oh, and I could live with financially pragmatic. So I'm only removing one of the four frames. What we then do is see where the entire constituency feels. So which one of those four frames was the most supported, could most of our members live with as a destination? Let's, if we get to 60... 
If we get to 60%, then we start to have form a policy position. If we fall underneath the 60%, then we remove the two that are least successful or least supported and then do another vote on the two that were the most. So we're looking for things that people can live with as destinations, which then the negotiation and the nuance comes into, well, what came second, third and fourth? So we understand what the primary concern is rather than having to give a finite position that excludes the idea that anything else is relevant. That's really interesting. So that, I think that's where um, what I was looking to sort of understand. And it sounds to me like you're describing a situation where the people are voting as to whether they can tolerate something, essentially. So, Correct. So like in, in sociopathy, about the notion of consent. So, so They're saying I consent to that decision. It's, it's like within my range of tolerance. That's exactly right. That is exactly the way to describe it. And so we, we um, one of my um, closest friends in the movement um, who's on the council um, and came, he came with me to San Francisco um, for the, the Global Awards, um, did some numbers. He's a bit of a data nerd and a math nerd, very smart guy, did his Masters at Cambridge. Um, and he, he, he did it through the US primaries and he had a look. And under the US primary system, Donald Trump wouldn't have been the nominee under our system. Because if you look at the first two or three primary votes, his vote was so low that there were so few people who would have put him in as a tolerable opportunity that he wouldn't have made the cut to go far enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's an interesting way of looking at it because all you do is you remove the least um, palatable opportunity, leaving the, the scope for compromise about things that I can live with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're, you're left with um, something that you think is awesome or something that you think is average, but you're not left with anything that you think is... Uh disastrous essentially correct and and what what you also have is even if it's just average it's an average that is the compromise of a vast percentage of the population what we have now is in reality in our it's certainly in our country in just about every issue you've got this you know 41 59 48 52 um division of the community um, you know, and it, and it doesn't work like that. And, you know, I saw this fascinating, another guy that you should talk to, actually, now that I'm thinking about it for your book, um, is a guy by the name of Josh Silver. I don't know if you've heard of him or you've spoken to him yet. You might have spoken to him. No, I've not, but if you know uh, him, I'd love, a, I'd love an intro. Oh, yeah, I'll intro to you, to you for sure. So Josh is the founder and the CEO of um, a, a pro-democracy group in America called Represent Us. And they are just phenomenal, unbelievable. And they're approaching this in a completely different frame of reference than any of the rest of us, certainly different to my vote and different to Democracy Earth and, and just about everybody I've heard. Um, because their system is fundamentally different, and, you know, there, there's a nuance in all the systems. What P is doing in Argentina is, is not exactly the same as here and it's not exactly the same as in Iceland. It's not exactly the same as Spain and anywhere else. But... Um, but in America, you know, it's it's a media-driven activity. It's it's a much more sort of populist idea. It's um, it, it's it's a different environment. And so he's attacked the issue quite brilliantly um, as a as a bill. So and he's done it from an anti-corruption point of view. So rather than saying um, I'm trying to be pro-democratic, for which nobody really gives a shit in America. Um, what he's done is said, here are clear points of corruption that can be validated by research. And they've done it with a whole lot of prestigious Ivy League universities, sort of 20-year longitudinal studies. Um, 
And what they've what they found, which is just fascinating, is that the correlation between voter intent and legislative outcome is at best independent of what the constituency wants and how much of the, the average constituents want. The best case is that 30% over the 20 years. 30% of what the people want, the people get by way of legislation. But when you start unpacking it and you look at it through different filters and lenses, if you're in the top 2 3 4% earners, then 87% of what you want gets through. And nearly 100% of what you don't want gets blocked. And so these are fascinating statistics. So what he did is he came back and he wrote a bill, which is which they've called the anti-corruption bill. And so rather than it being about democracy, it's about corruption, which he's getting bipartisan support for. So this bill is winning. Every time they go out, he's just winning state after state after state. And he will change the laws about lobbying, about donations, about a whole range of things. Because there isn't a party who can not support an anti-corruption bill. And so when we were there, he just won another state with another landslide vote. And he, he showed me a picture of him standing there with, on, under one arm was the head of the Greens Party and on the other arm was the head of the Tea Party. And those two people in 40 years have never voted the same way on a bill before, but they did for anti-corruption. And he did it on, on, on the basis of part of the research that he did with his Ivy League partners, which was really fascinating because one of the bits that they did, one of the questions that they asked of the, the quite a large sample group was how do you self-identify politically? And so what you expect in America is that the vast majority will either be Democrat left or Republican right. And that wasn't the case at all. So 21% self-identified as left Democrats, 27% self-identified as right Republicans. But the majority in the middle considered themselves, self self-described themselves as moderates. And the point that he makes, which was brilliant because it's one of the best presentations I've ever seen, was um, that all social change that has happened and all sort of the, pro the progressive change that's happened over time has been driven out of the left. But that only represents the way 21% of people identify themselves. If you can convince the moderates who don't care if it's left or right are just looking for a solutions-oriented approach, then you win every time because they are the majority. And if, it's a, and if it's a, it's a significant change, you're likely to win the left as well. So you've got a really significant majority. And he's proving this out state by state, month after month. Um, he's definitely somebody you should talk to. He's just a freak. Yeah, have you, um, I'm assuming you've heard of Lawrence Lessig, is it? The, um, yes, yeah. Is, so yeah. I, I'm really, uh, I watched his, his TED talk recently, the one about uh, crowdfunded elections, basically. Yep. And I think he talks about 0.01% of the population is deciding the pool of candidates from which we choose from um, yep. in America, which is, which is like staggeringly scary. Um, and so yep. his his answer to that is rather as, as, like I think is basically rather than very few people giving lots of money, we have very many people give very little money in order to choose mm -hmm. who who can represent us. Um, so I'm wondering where you where you stand on that sort of crowdfunded aspect in in general and in regards to my vote. We're crowdfunded, so we're individual donor funded. That's how we operate. Um, we don't take corporate money. We don't take lobby money. We, we, it's, you know, our constitution doesn't allow it. It's one of the founding principles. So everything we do is about people wanting to donate. A question that's been popping up for me is, I think something that still like sticks with me a bit is this notion of the majority rules, because if majority yep. rules, minority doesn't rule. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I'm wondering where you stand on 
how centralized or decentralized the future would be. Um, so an example, the best example I think I have for that, although my knowledge isn't, um, isn't so in-depth, is in Switzerland, for instance, the cantons have a lot of power. Yep. Um, so which yep. essentially, in my, in my mind, like from, a, from an org theory perspective, means that you have a small pocket of people that can try something. And every pocket can try something or something different. Uh -huh. And if it fails, that won't replicate across the bigger system. But if it succeeds, yep. it's likely to spread. Um, so I'm wondering whether you, where you stand on like having centralized decisions or decentralized ones. Or maybe there's both. There's look, different uh, types. Look, it, it has the potential to do both, to be honest. Um, and, and I think it, it depends what level of government we're talking about. And so one of the things we're talking about here, and this is the fundamental difference, I guess, between PIA and, and us, and certainly the first few conversations I ever had with PIA, um, we talked about the way that she was starting um, Democracy OS and what she was doing with that as a platform. And, and she had made a very deliberate decision, as I recall, to start at the grassroots level and then sort of go up to the national level and we've made a very distinct deliberate decision to start at the top and then work back down into local government level and i i, I think that the question around centralization or otherwise is dependent upon the type of decisions that we're talking about so the my vote model will work at local government level um, for a different set of um, decisions that where people can get a little bit more creative and try different things um, but the reality is that, again, you know, people talk about there are winners and losers and it's a bad thing that there are losers. But that's what, that's what life is about. Like, it sounds harsh, but the reality is that if people have an opportunity to look at options and, and look at the data that supports each of those options and they make a decision and by virtue of that decision other things aren't successful, that's the way of the world, you know. You, you can't... You have to allow everybody to have the voice, but you have to govern for the majority. And so, and, and this is where we fall, you know, this is where the systems have fallen short because A, they either don't provide everybody a voice. And so the minority is a minority, not by virtue of the fact that um, people don't support, the majority of people don't support the position. They're minority by virtue of the fact that they don't have a voice at all to even, to put that position, to even know if people would support it because it, it is not popular amongst the people who control the platforms for the conversation. That's where democracy is getting eroded. Not that people have that opportunity and people decide that they don't want that. So, for example, the big raging debate now about this racist senator that we have is whether or not people should be attacking her for her stance or allowing her to air it so that the vast majority of people can reject it. And so, you know, and I can see the argument both sides to say, no, let her go on and spew this filth on the basis that the, the country will hear it, they will understand that it's not something they want, and we can finally be rid of it as a political voice. Um, the alternative is you try and shut her down and make her look stupid and ostracise her, and all it does is embolden and empower the group of people who already feel ostracised by saying, the, see, the system won't even let us have a voice. And, and this is where democracy has to be um, a little bit brutal in saying just because you have an opinion doesn't mean we should follow it. And if there are, you know, and this is the point that I made to the senator 
via Twitter this in the last 24 hours about his 18C amendment and that I'm there to protect my base. But your base represents 0.5% of the Australian population. So for you to publicly say that you're going to change a law or advocate the changing of a law on the basis of half of a percent means that you fundamentally don't understand what democracy is about and you don't understand what your job is because the minute you get elected, you are no longer representing a party, you are representing a country. Um, and, and that's where we fall down. The way that we need to gamify some of that, and I say that and that'll make people deeply uncomfortable when I use that word, but what was interesting is when we were talking to our techie people early on about what the platform needs to do, one of the guys in our tech team who's um, who was actually an outsourced expert that I went to who I've used in business before runs one of the best app shops um, in the Southern Hemisphere really well regarded all over the world um, and he's you know he's one of the guys who talks at the apple conferences and the google conferences and stuff like that and he and i were sitting down and he's completely politically disengaged he has no interest in politics whatsoever nor does his wife and he and but he loves what we're doing he loves that it's kind of a circuit breaker and it makes it more accessible and it's more fair and um and so we, i was talking to him about how you would build the platform and the safeguards and all that and what's technically possible and what not um, and he said to me you know what what's um, what's interesting about it is that, I, I, he said, I'm thinking about myself as a user and I'm not that into politics, but I'd give this a go. And so let's imagine I download the app and I do three votes and I vote for three destinations and all three of my first destinations are unsuccessful and they are not, they don't become the party, the movement's um, policy. You know, how am I going to feel? Am I going to go, oh, well, I'm not going to come back to this. You know, I never win anything. And so he came back to me and said, look, off my own bat, I'm going out to Silicon Valley to speak to a couple of professors who work with gaming companies about how you gamify losing so that you acknowledge that it's a loss, but you sweeten it so that you don't get discouraged from by not, about not participating again. And so a lot of that, as I've learned now, is about disclosure and communication. And so, for example... If you were a member and you voted on that immigration um, piece and let's say you chose border security and let's say that that was an unsuccessful position because the majority went for humanitarian or international diplomacy as a, as a destination, you would, get, you would get a push notification that said, hey, um, you know, John, you voted on, on this destination or frame for the issue. 1.1 um, million MyVote members have voted, 77% um, or this number of people have voted for the international diplomacy frame, and this will form the basis of the movement's policy on this issue going forward. Um, but understand, don't feel discouraged, because 114,000 people voted exactly the same way that you did. And so you've taken a loss, but you recognise that you're not alone. And, in fact, there are other people who believe what you believe in, but there are there are many, many more people who feel a different way. And, when, and I and guess so in we're that looking sense at, it's meritocratic because then it's that person's responsibility to, if they choose to take responsibility, to create a movement that includes those people who lost out in that vote um, to see if that, that can gain some sort of momentum on a, on a bigger scale. Exactly right. That's exactly a, right. You know, I'd be much though, more concerned that people came to me and said... Cycles, no? Like, if we're... Sorry, say that again? That, that also um, assumes that the cycle on which we vote should be either ongoing, like in liquid democracy, or... It has to be ongoing, and I'll tell you why it has to be ongoing. This is one of the things that we came to really early on. So when we were, when we were looking for all of the potential 
integrity danger points in our system and our platform. One of the things that was brought up early by um, sort of a, an acquaintance of ours who was looking at the system, a mathematician, basically came and said, listen, it's all good and well that you can get to your 60% and nobody else can and, that, and that's fine and it's good that you're using it as sort of um, a, a tolerance threshold. That's great and that's going to work mathematically and you can you can run that as a, as a system. Um, but if you take a vote today with the number of members you have on immigration and in a year's time, so you've gone from a few thousand members to a million members, how can you possibly say that the movement's policy position still represents the majority view if you've grown from 5,000 to a million, which is an entirely reasonable point to make? So we then wrote into the Constitution that if our membership exceeds by 50% the voting volume that we had at any voting point in time, that vote must be taken again. So whilst you may vote on it, in the early phases, if we have high growth, people may be voting on the same issue a few times because we have to make sure that we actually are representing the volume of people that we have and the constituency that we have. We can't rest on this idea that we vote once and that's it. That's kind of what the existing ideologies do. We have a position now, we're not straying from the position. And the reality is also that over time people's views change they have a different opinion about the world. Things happen in the world that make them feel differently. New new facts come to light. New information comes to light. Science provides information that we weren't aware of when we last looked at this issue. And so you, you need to keep going back and sense-checking the position on things and allowing people the most informed view they can possibly have about the issue. I'm curious about that because I've been I've been trying to uh, I'm I'm not amazing at maths but I've been trying to figure out how nor am I believe me <laughs> I've basically been trying to think of what the old system looks like and what the new world looks like so in the old basically we're in a world with uh, many bigger more frequent more difficult more direct problems than ever but in a linear system, you vote rarely on indirect things, um, and not many people do that. Um, mm -hmm. As in, as in, uh, the number of people that come out to vote isn't that huge. So, um, so what I've been looking at is whether mathematically it is safer, because by voting, by more people voting more often on more different things and re-voting on the same things over and over again, so there's a, a level of iteration. Um, possibly in more decentralized communities, um, essentially the number is far bigger, therefore the importance of each respective number is far lower, if you see what I mean. Yes. Um, yep. so I'm, curious, I'm curious to hear if, uh, if that rhymes with what you've heard and if there's any like uh, maths or equations on this kind of stuff that your, your friend or researcher you were saying has done that oh, you can so, share. So I'm not, I'm not aware, and, and in truth, I, I haven't looked into it, but I'll, I'll absolutely ask about it now. Um, uh, so I, I don't know is the answer. But, but again, this is where the variances in the system um, change the nature of what, what the world could look like because we all run in different systems. So we have mandatory voting here. So the reality is that you're rocking up to an election and you're voting or you're getting a fine. You don't have a choice. You, you have to engage. The question is, are you going to be there and, you know, I think what was the, 
statistic I heard about something like some staggering number in the tens of thousands of people just drew penises on their voting card this year. <laughs> um, so you know there are, or you know fuck off or whatever it is. So there there are there are people who walk into the booth because they have to check their name off and walk into the booth, but are not part of the system. They're not participating in it. There are others who participate and just write down what they've always written down without thinking about what it is. There are others who really scrutinise the issues. In an environment like America, where, and I think the UK is the same, you don't have mandatory voting either, the issue is not just about um, the strength of the argument, and this is part of why ideology is eroding democracy because it's not even about the strength of the idea anymore it's about the strength of the entertainment value of the candidates that can drive people to a voting booth and that's a fundamental problem and it's because we only ask the questions every three or four years and we go to a voting booth every three or four years depending upon which country you're in um, that all of a sudden um, the nature of your engagement and understanding of the issues um, is is strong or otherwise if if by virtue of the ease and efficiency of the system and the nature of the facts that are at hand, you can have an ongoing relationship with your democracy that becomes part of the way you live your life rather than a nuisance on a Saturday where you have to stand in line for three hours or get fined, then it might be that people engage differently. The truth is nobody knows because nobody's done it before. You know, yeah, it, yeah. this might be a, spe- a spectacular exercise in failure that it, it logically makes sense, but yet we can't change the behaviour pattern to make a difference. Only time is going to tell. Time. I want to. I want to end with uh, a question, which might, which sort of for the amateur futurist in us, uh, and that's <laughs> what. What do you think will happen to the notion of? a nation, so to speak. So what do you think will happen to the idea of countries in, in if, if tools and platforms and models like the ones we're discussing come to become, you know, ubiquitous? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, really interesting question. Um, I, I've turned my mind to this only recently as a result of San Francisco and only because, um, you know, 22 different countries have indicated an intent to start a my vote chapter and how can we help them do that and so i thought what does it mean if my vote is in 22 plus countries 23 countries you know all of a sudden this notion of political parties in in national jurisdictions um, that are relevant only to their part of the world um, i mean that will continue because people who you know if you start a my vote chapter in south africa you're not going to be voting on issues in australia because you don't have the the right as a citizen but but the notion of understanding what a global citizenry wants and the way that you can formulate some global issues rather than just local national issues, it, it does change the nature of, of what it means. But I don't think the question is about what does it mean to nations. I think is what does it mean to humanity is probably the bigger question. Um, because if all of a sudden we're able to take a nationalistic frame off the way that we look at some fairly significant systemic issues and we talk about them as human beings, as a group of people who have to share a finite amount of resource, then that fundamentally changes the question. Um, And if we're able to, in real time, have conversations with a billion people around the world who can tell you what they think about climate change or the immigration crisis or um, tax reform or free trade or whatever those, those global issues might be, um, then that becomes incredibly powerful. That changes 
really dramatically what it means to exist in the world today. Um, because, you know, what we have now are nationalistic power struggles um, to, to control geographies. But if all of a sudden the majority of humanity decides that this is now an imperative, whatever this is, but it's an imperative for everyone, um, then, then we no longer act as individual sovereign nations. We act as a collective humanity, which is a really powerful idea. Um, but I think we're quite some way before we get to that. I think so too, but um, these kind of ideas are definitely the, the beginning of that being at least, um, at least more than a, a sci-fi fantasy. Amazing. I mean, wonderful to hear, hear a guy who is so, so thorough in his thinking and, and taking that thinking right through to execution. And, and amazing to hear that, that my vote's been, been picked up by, by 22 countries, or starting to be picked up by 22 countries before it's even properly launched in Australia. He's clearly like hit on something that there's a real need for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and he, he's got this like entrepreneur's spirit whilst also sort of combining that with, with real like solid morals and, and like a belief in the kind of humanity we can create. And I, th I think seeing those two sides of his personality uh, come together is, is pretty inspiring really. Mm. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on wherever it is that you subscribe to our podcasts. Check out democracysquared.io for links to the Kickstarter project, uh, other interviews, um, and whatever else you want to find out about the book. Um, this is Jim and John from Sequoia National Park in California, signing off on episode two of the Democracy Squared series on the Flux podcast. Mm -hmm.